actually one of my biggest fears in um, in preaching was just realized this morning. Um, my mic was on all during the singing part. <laughs> that, is, that is seriously one of my biggest fears, that, that my voice would be amplified during the singing time. Uh, Joe, thank you for muting that back there. Oh, man, I, I was going to take me a moment to recover. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. Good morning. Um, if you are a regular attender at Redeemer Church, you know that... Um, that Pastor Chet has been preaching through uh, the book of Mark. And you also know, if you're a regular attender at Redeemer Church, that um, during some of the breaks in, in the book of Mark, uh, we've been in a series called Why Do We? You know, and, and we're answering in this other sermon series questions like, you know, why do we practice uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper? Why do we practice the ordinances of the church? Or, or why do we have community groups? Or, or, or why do we have church membership? Or one of my favorites, why do we practice church discipline? Okay, you know, uh, and then this morning we're going to address another one of those uh, questions. Why do we plant churches? And this is, I mean, this is pretty pertinent for Redeemer Church, right? Because on August 29th of 2010, one of Champaign-Urbana's newest churches, a church plant called Redeemer Church, launched. Redeemer Church launched officially August 29th of 2010. It's been less than a year since Redeemer Church officially launched. Redeemer Church is a church plant. Well, so... You can see why that question about why we plant churches is, is very pertinent to, to this congregation. But it goes beyond that. It's, it's not just, you know, why was Redeemer Church planted, but it's also why will Redeemer Church plant churches? That's another question we, we're going to have to answer because, as you know, if, again, if you are a regular attender, and, and if you're not a regular attender, please understand, I'm not singling you out, okay? Uh, uh, the reason why I'm saying if you're a regular attender, you know these things. If you're not a regular attender, you're learning them now, and that's fantastic. So um, our mission, the mission of Redeemer Church is to build redemptive communities, plural, of gospel-centered people. And, of course, part of that mission is building those kind of communities of gospel-centered people here in Champaign-Urbana as Redeemer Church continues to grow and reaches more people and our community groups and our life transformation groups continue to multiply. Then we are indeed building communities of gospel-centered people. And so our mission statement actually gets at and speaks to a little bit, you know, this growth of the community life of Redeemer Church. But also, that mission gets at and points to the day, uh, the day, I hope, honestly, that is very soon, that Redeemer Church starts planting other churches throughout Illinois, the United States, the world. When Redeemer Church becomes a church planting church. And, and also, um, if you think about some of the things that, that um, we've taught here at Redeemer Church and you'll find in, on our website when we talk about our strategy, the strategy of Redeemer Church, how it is we're going to go about 
fulfilling that mission of building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. Well, you know, we have things in there like proclamation and presence and prayer and planned patience. And another one of those things is planting. It's planting. Part of our strategy for fulfilling our mission is planting churches. So this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time um, talking about, or us together, investigating the scriptures and coming to an understanding from, from the Bible. It's come, come to an understanding from the Word of God why we plant churches. There is a danger in church planting. Uh, well, there's a lot of dangers in church planting. Let's, let's, let's be honest. There are lots of dangers in church planting. But one of the perhaps gravest dangers in church planting is to approach church planting simply from a practical, uh, systems, pragmatic, uh, stri- uh, strategic approach. In other words, okay, if, if I do A and B, then C will happen. And, and the way we go about planting churches is, we, you know, you got this formula and you do your demographics and you find out the percentage of the unchurched in a particular community under so many square miles, blah, blah, you know. And, and it, it becomes almost like city planning or, or, uh, you know, or something like that. And, and we forget, sometimes in church planting, we forget the biblical basis for why we, we plant churches. I want us to get at that this morning. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to two passages of Scripture. Um, they're up there, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, and then Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So we'll, we're going to start with Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 13. Um, is that on page 822? Okay. It's on page 822 in the chair Bible. I mean, if you're using a, yeah, you know what I'm saying, right? Okay. (laughs) Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and wherever your... And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Then Matthew 18, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So, why do we plant churches? I think we're going to find an answer to that in, in, in this account of Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, of course, the disciples answer, well, that you are, you know, uh, you, you are John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And just for a minute, just think about that. Jesus has already been ministering and he's been teaching and recognizes teaching with one who has authority. Unlike, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, but one who has authority. He's already gone through towns and villages and in cities and he's performed wonders and signs and miracles. So he's, he's teaching like no one has ever taught. And he's not just teaching generally, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the kingdom of God in a way that no one's ever taught before, that no one can rival, that everyone agrees his teaching is different because it's with authority. He's teaching about the kingdom of God like someone who knows something about the kingdom of God and has some authority to teach about the kingdom of God. And then he's performing all of these signs and wonders, you know, feeding of multitudes and the healing of diseases and the casting out of demons. And still, and you know, and, and for us as you know, New Testament constant reader, this this seems weird to us, but they still don't know who he is. They still don't know who Jesus is. They still don't know the people, the people who are flocking and following and coming, and you know, as we've seen in Mark, quite often they're just coming for the show. They're coming for the show because here's a guy who's going to do something amazing, and I want to watch you know this guy do something amazing. You know, uh, I mean, he's not evil Knievel. He's not going to jump over the Snake River Canyon. Well, you know what? I just I just totally aged myself right there, didn't I? Does it, how many of you guys even know who Evil Knievel was? Oh, hey, all right, cool. That's not so bad. I don't feel so bad now. But you know, it's it's kind of like that though. You know, people would flock around to see Evil Knievel do something. Either he's going to succeed spectacularly, or he's going to fail spectacularly. Either way, it's a show. Okay, and, and and that's kind of what's going on around Jesus. These people are coming around just to watch the show, and they're not understanding who he is because they still say, "Well, maybe he's John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or or one of the prophets." And then Jesus asked the disciples, particularly, asked them point blank. But who do you say that I am? And, and Peter speaks up and boldly makes this confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter for making that confession. He says, well, blessed are you, Simon Borjonicus, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Man, Jesus recognizes that Peter has had, <coughs> excuse me, he, he's had a, a, an epiphany. He, he's had a, a spiritual moment. Peter has heard from God. Peter's heard from the Lord. And what he's heard from the Lord is that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus affirms that. And then he says, and, and, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I know, you know, we could spend some time talking about, well, you know, Peter being Petros in Greek and, and that being like Petra, which is rock. And then if you take his other name, Cephas, in Aramaic, it's, it's like another word for rock. And so there's all of these word plays on Peter's name about rock. And, and then, of course, there are some, uh, there are some like the Roman Catholic Church, who said, well, this, this passage of Scripture and Jesus proclaiming that Peter is the rock, he's going to build his church on this rock, then it's Peter is, you know, like the first pope and, and, and all of that. And, 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 we could spend some time talking about that, but that's not really what we're after this morning. We're not, we're not, we're not trying to answer the question this morning of, of what did Jesus mean when he, when he talked about a rock in light of Peter's name, and I'm going to build my church on this. No, we're really talking about why do we plant churches. So just for the moment, just, I, I just want to make this statement about that. It's Peter's the rock when he's making this confession of Christ. It's Peter not as... Peter is the foundation of the church, but Peter, when he's making this proclamation, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the rock in which Jesus says he will build his church. Now we're getting to the point where we're beginning to answer this question, why do we plant churches? Well, we, we plant churches because of the nature and command of Christ. Jesus says... Jesus says, I will build my church. Who's building the church? Jesus. Jesus. Whose church is it? The church belongs to Jesus, and he's the one that's building it. He's the head of the church. He's the church's founder and builder. Don't you think the one who builds the church and the one to whom the church belongs, don't you think that the church would reflect him? I do. I do. I, I think the church should reflect Jesus and his character. Right? Because it's his church, and he's the one that's building it, so of course it's going to have his fingerprints all over it. And, and it's going to reflect his character, and his nature. And I want to suggest that that's one of the reasons that we plant churches. Simply, we plant churches because Jesus is who he is. Now, in this passage of Scripture, he's proclaimed by Peter, and Jesus affirms Peter for saying this, so we know that it's true. We know that it's true when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus affirms him for that, and because Jesus affirms him, we know that Peter's words are true. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And simply those two characteristics, those two truths about Jesus impact why we plant churches. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, he is the Messiah or the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And what did Jesus do as Savior? Well, he only left heaven 
and became a man and was born as a helpless infant here on earth and he and lived a sinless life not so that he could be served but so that he could serve and give his life as a ransom for many and then after living that sinless life he he suffered and died upon a cross in my place in your place to become a yes yes a propitiation my favorite word to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf, to purchase freedom for us, to, to, to move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, to take our sin upon himself so that in him we might have the righteousness of God, righteousness of God that our sins might be forgiven and that we would have the hope of eternal life. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Savior, the Messiah, the one who leaves heaven, goes to earth, not to be served, though he has the right to be served. Do, do we recognize that? I mean, does, does heaven's king have the right to come to earth and be served? Does the one who created the earth and everything that's in it, the one through whom and for whom and by whom it's all created, does he have the right to come and be served? Absolutely he does. But instead, he comes to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do, do you see Christ's... <laughs> missionary nature, his going, serving, reaching out nature. It, the, the very title of Christ, the Son of the living God, has written all over it this going out and for the glory of God, gathering a people for God's own possession. That's written all over Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So as the Christ, the Messiah, it, that's written all over. The, but then there's the Son of the living God. And you know what? If, if you're going to go and for God's glory gather a people for God's own possession, you've got to have the authority to do that. And Son of the living God gives Jesus the authority to do that. So, that's why Jesus is also the head of the church. Yes, he's, it's, it's not simply that he is the founder of the church, but he's also the head of the church. It, you know, it, it's not that he's the founder of the church and then he goes away. You know, he's the founder of the church and we all, we all give... Uh, you know, we express our gratitude and we give praise to the founder of the church, but somebody else is leading it. No. Jesus also leads the church because he's the head of the church. Okay? And he has the authority because he is the son of the living God. He has the authority to be the head of the church because he's the son of the living God. We plant churches because Jesus is who he is. But we also plant churches 
because of the command of Christ. It's, it's not just the nature of Christ. Though, let's face it, that, that could be enough. I mean, we, we could stop now and say, because of the character of Christ, because Jesus is who He is, because He is this, this, this one who left heaven and came to earth, to seek and save the lost. And by showing us how to do that and the necessity to do that, we plant churches. That, that could be enough. That would be enough. And then the fact that he has the authority to do so, that would be enough. But there's more. He, there, there's also the command of, of Christ. And I, I just invite you to flip over to Matthew 28. We read that already, but let's look at it again. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, there's that authority thing again. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you see that command in there to, to, to go and to disciple and to baptize and to teach? Do you see that? Do you agree? Do you agree with me that there is in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, a command for for God's people to to go and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach concerning Christ? Do you agree? Yes. Okay. What do you think the church does? I think the church goes and makes disciples, and baptizes, and teaches. Right? Is that what God has called His church? Is that what Christ has called the church to do? To, to go and win them, and to gather them, and to disciple them, and to teach them, and to send them out? Yes, that's exactly what the church does. I see the Great Commission perhaps as a great command to church planting. Because... What Jesus commands his followers to do is to go do, go be the church. Go and be the church. And there's that go. And I realize we, we understand that go in more than one way. And we understand it sometimes, and you've heard this said, and it's true that it's sort of this as you go. Meaning this needs to be a part of your life as you go. And that's true. That, that is part of the nuance of meaning of, of that go, but it's also a go. <laughs> it's, still, it's still just go. It's, it's not stay, it's go. It's still go. It's not, it's not less than go, okay? It's not less than go. It's like, well, go if you want to, or go if you happen to be going. No, go, go, and as you go, do this. That's, that's the command. And so it's... We, we plant churches because of both the nature of Christ, the one to whom the church belongs and by whom the church is founded and for whom the church exists, okay? And it's also because of the command of him who builds his church. So we plant churches to reflect Christ's character in his church, and we plant churches because it's Christ's command for us to go and disciple and baptize and teach, in other words, to be the church.
But also, we plant churches because of the nature and design of the church. Because of the nature and the design of the church. Look what Jesus says about the church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. First of all, first of all, that ought to be a bit of encouragement for you and I. Right? Shouldn't it be? I mean, shouldn't we get pretty excited about this proclamation of victory? Isn't that what it is? I mean, isn't what Jesus is saying is, and my church will be victorious? <coughs> when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, I mean, if, we, if you take that the other way, then it means my church will win, will defeat. My church will prevail against the gates of hell because the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I mean, is that fair? Can we say that? I think we can. I think we can take the reverse, you know, say that the other way and say, yes, it's true that the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means that the church will prevail against the gates of hell. So one characteristic part of the church's nature is that it's a victorious church. The church is a victorious church. Why? One of the reasons that we plant churches is that the church is victorious. Because Christ has made it so. Because Christ has proclaimed and assured and affirmed that the church will be victorious. The church will ultimately accomplish the purpose for which Christ has suffered and died for it. It will be victorious. And so we plant churches because the church is victorious. But also, notice in that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I see in that an advancing church. A conquering church. What are gates? Gates are what? Defenses, right. Gates are a defensive weapon. Like, you know, have you ever, uh, have you ever heard about in battle an army going out with their gates in front of them? <laughs> and they rush the enemy with their gates. Unless it's Bill, no, you know. That was lame. <laughs> Bill Gates, yeah, I know. Wasn't that was so? I wish. Let's delete that part from the audio recording if we could. That was really bad. But yeah, the, gates are a defensive weapon. They're not offensive. No one, no one goes at, goes into battle with your gates. No, when someone's coming against you, you go hide behind your gates, right? And you hope your gates are strong enough to keep the enemy out. Okay. So, what what Jesus says is that. My church, as they advance against the gates of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church because my church, my church is an advancing, conquering army. Force. It's not meant to stand still and stay in one place, but to go forward, to advance, to take the enemy's ground. 
That's that's the design of the church. I mean, if you want to put it in sort of some military kind of language, the church is Christ's major offensive weapon on this earth in the building of his kingdom. But I think that the the place that those gates are most overcome is with the gospel in human hearts. The the gates of hell that are surrounding human hearts. Those those men and women who have been blinded by the God of this world to the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Those who are dead in their trespasses and their sins and, and who are children of wrath like all of mankind and who are under the power of Satan. They are under the power of the evil one. I think... We could say because they are in the kingdom of darkness, not in the kingdom of light. Because they are under the power of Satan. Because they've been blinded by the God of this world, who is Satan. Because, you know, because they are dead in their trespasses and their sin. Because they are children of wrath. Doesn't that sound to you like the gates of hell are around their heart? It, it, it sounds that way to me. And it's the church that rips the gates of hell from the hearts of men and women and boys and girls with the message of the gospel, with the good news, the message of Christ and salvation that's found in him through repentance and faith. That's that's how the church advances. But it is an advancing church. It is a conquering church. That's how Christ has designed it to be. So we plant churches because of the nature and the design of the church. And then we also, we also plant churches because of the equipping bestowed upon the church by Christ. Look again at Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys to the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember when you were 15, 16 years old? And your parents, probably your dad, for the first time, handed you the keys to the car. That was power, wasn't it? I mean, you're like, yes, I can go where I want to go, be who I want to be. You know, I mean, there's there there was freedom and <laughs> there's freedom and power in having those keys. Those keys represented a lot. Okay, but that was just through the stupid car. 
How about keys to the kingdom of heaven? You and I, as the church, Christ has equipped us with the way to unlock the door to the kingdom of heaven for those who are outside the kingdom. Christ has equipped us. He's given us the key, the keys to open the door to the kingdom of God, to His kingdom, so that we might bring those outside the kingdom into the kingdom. It's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the word of reconciliation. It's, you know, what Jesus is, when Jesus is talking about the keys to the kingdom here, it's very similar to what he talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, when, when he talked about in, entrusting to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making a, an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's a very, very similar thing he's talking about there, but we've been equipped. We've been equipped with the gospel and the power to proclaim it so that we might open the doors to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God, so that those outside the kingdom can come in. Why wouldn't we do that? And, and then why wouldn't we do that through church planting? Because we've been equipped with this and... And again, this equipping is given to the church. It's given to the church because Jesus is saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom so that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you lose, he's given it to the church. Okay, this is a, this is these keys are given to the church. So if they're given to the church, why wouldn't the church expand? Why wouldn't the church grow? Why wouldn't the church plant churches so we can continue to open the doors to the kingdom of of God, to Christ's kingdom, with by proclaiming the gospel, by proclaiming the truth? Why wouldn't we do that? Well, you know, the answer to that is well, you know, we we would do it. We should do it. We will. Do it. We plant churches because of that equipping. And so it's not just the keys and the message, but then it's also the power to do so. It's the power to proclaim. It's the power and authority to use the gospel in proclamation so that we might open the doors of the kingdom through the planting of new churches. Because Jesus said, first of all, in Matthew 28, at verse 18, he says, All authority... In heaven and earth has been given to me. So, Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth. And then he says, the end of verse 20. Surely I will be with you to the end of the age. That's the rest of that equipping. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth is with us, is with his church, is with his people for the purpose of going and making disciples and baptizing and teaching in, in the proclamation of the gospel with power to open the doors of the kingdom so those outside the kingdom can come in. So we plant churches because of the equipping that has been bestowed upon us by Christ. But then, finally, we plant churches 
because of the lostness in our world. Simply because of the need. This is a saying worthy of full acceptance. Christ came to seek and save that which is lost. And that ministry of seeking and saving the lost has been entrusted to the church. There's a lot of lostness out there, right? I mean, let's just start with Illinois. Do you know how many people are in Illinois? Hmm? Yeah, a little over 12 million. 12, 12.6 million. It's a little over 12.5 million. Do you know how many... How many of them don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know how many of them are lost? About 10 million. About 10 out of 12 and a half million people just in Illinois. In North America, something like 320 million people just in North America who are lost, who are without Christ or hope in this world. I can't even begin to talk about the world. I can't even begin to talk about the lostness in the world. You know, gosh, just thinking about the... Not that we're going to forget the world. (laughs) By no means. God forbid, we're not going to forget the world. I'm not going to say let's not go to the world. We're going to go to the world. But I, I, I just can't even begin to talk about the level of lostness in the world because it's too staggering for me to even begin to talk about that. Just know it's great. The need is great. If there is a great amount of lostness in our city, in our state, in our country, around the world, and the church is the primary means by which Christ reaches the lost, then isn't the natural conclusion is we need more churches? I mean, is that sound reasoning? Does that make sense? You track with that? I mean, it makes sense to me. Is it, If there's a huge amount of lostness, and the church is the way Christ reaches the lost, then we need a lot of churches. So we plant churches also because of the lostness in our world. And... And that's, not, and, and that's not in any way outside of what we've already talked about. Because the, the nature and command of Christ is to address and reduce and this issue of lostness. And, and the nature and design of the church is to, to advance. And it advances by reducing lostness. The way that it, the way that it, that it prevails, the way the church prevails against the gates of hell is by ripping them off the hearts of, the gates of hell off the hearts of, of, of individuals and communities and cities and countries. So the need is by no means outside of this, this biblical basis for church planting. Why do we plant churches? Because of Jesus. Because of the church, because of what Jesus has given to the church, because of the need. 
guess I guess the challenge, the question this morning is are you gonna plant churches? Are you gonna plant churches? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for giving the giving to us this mission of planting churches. And we understand, God, that it's not just a mission and a job, but it's actually a response to the very character and nature of Christ, to the nature and design of the church, and a response to the equipping that you've bestowed upon us. Father, I, I pray simply that we'll plant churches. In Jesus' name, amen.